Hi, welcome to Exploring the Illusion of Free Will. My name is George Ortega, and today's topic is History's Top Scientist Jonathan M. S. Pierce Refutes Free Will, Part 3 of 4. Okay, um, you know, as, as I just said, you know, this is like part of a four-part series, and it's, it really um, presents a talk that Jonathan Pierce gave to the South Hampshire, England Humanist Society. And um, Jonathan Pierce is from Portsmouth, England. Uh, in 2010, he published um, a truly brilliant book. I mean, a book of, uh, of historical significance. And it's not like hyperbole that I, that, I, um, that I title this episode, you know, History's Top Scientist Refutes Free Will, because, you know, by any kind of reasonable analysis of what he's done with this, I think um, an objective reader would agree. Um, so the book is titled Free Will, an investigation into whether we have free will or whether I was always going to write this book. Um, <clears throat> before we get into the clip, I just want to like read just a, a bit of like my initial reaction to it because I was like completely wowed by it, you know, in the beginning. First, you know, I, I wrote um, that you know this is like at three o'clock in the morning. I went on to like Facebook and I, I just had to write this. This is far and away the best refutation of free will available anywhere. Um, Pierce's book communicates engaging, engagingly and intelligently in a style that the public and not just academics can understand and fully appreciate. And Jonathan M.S. Pierce is quite possibly considering the importance of the question of human will to humanity's future, the quintessential genius not only of our time, but of all time. And again, the reason I make this statement, um, there was a book that... Um, Another a philosopher named Susan Blackmore came out with several years ago. It was called Conversations on Consciousness, and one of the major themes of the book was free will. Basically, she interviewed some eminent philosophers, asking them what um, their take was on consciousness and you know, the free will question. And so when, when Susan Blackmore presented to John Searle the prospect that free will is an illusion, his remark was that um, that would be a bigger revolution in our thinking than Einstein or Copernicus or Newton or Galileo or Darwin. Then he goes on to say it would alter our whole conception of our relation with, with the universe. It makes sense. I mean, Einstein, you know, his, his work pretty much revolutionized our technological world, you know, transistors, um, you know, our whole atomic nuclear age, our whole age of technologies was to a large degree based on his work. Um, I'm not discounting the work of Darwin and showing people that, you know, there was an evolution, that we've been around for several million years, and, and Copernicus showed us that, you know, we aren't the center of the universe as was um, thought, you know, <coughs> some time ago. But, um, but, you know, you have to consider the importance, like, the idea is like humanity is completely deluded about the first fundamental fact of why we do things. You know, just the idea that we don't have a free will, that, that basically we, we, um, we believe that things are up to us, but the reality, and it's a very simple reality when you think about it, because like either, our, either causality rules the world or, the, or things are random, and those are the only two possibilities that exist, so either one of them equally refute free will. So it's not as if it's an open question. 
So, um, but for someone to uh, present the question and and answer first, you know, address the um, the illusion so devastatingly as as he does. I mean, he just simply devastates the arguments for free will and just very convincingly um, demonstrates that that it is impossible for somebody to do that um, and basically just have our world understand that no, things are not up to us. It's, it represents the evolution of our consciousness, you know, as a species. You know, we, we, you know, we have our, our designation, Homo sapien, um, and, you know, we, we have certain characteristics. Most of these are physical, but, but there's also a psycho- psychological component to who we are. And to the extent that we collectively, as, as a species, as a humanity, overcome this very harmful, this very mistaken delusion that we human beings have a free will, we could and hopefully will create a brand new world. So again, you know, um, while the achievements of Einstein and Copernicus and Galileo and, <clears throat> and Darwin are great, you know, this, this clearly su- surpasses them in its significance. You know, and again, Pierce does a brilliant job of explaining it. Okay, um, <clears throat> before, let's see. Um, yeah, all right, so right now let's, Let's just take a look at the clip. It's about a 13, 14-minute clip, and then what I'll do after that is, um, is come back and just review what Pierce has said. Okay, here we go. Very famous, the Gucci. It's had a lot of criticism, but a lot of people think it's very interesting as well. Um, he, this guy, Dean Hamer, has found that uh, there are genes in the brain which make you more predisposed to be spiritual. And we, we do know... We know this is certainly the case, and, and actually, again, it correlates across to, um, I think, often artistic people are more spiritual, and your scientific people are, are often a lot sort of less spiritual on a generalised basis, and things like that. So, he's isolated these genes, they were called the God gene, um, it's a bit derisory by, uh, by critics, religious critics, um, who obviously don't want to see themselves as being determined to believe in the God that they believe in. But, uh, but it's interesting. You've got to always be wary of any science that includes that word and says that the gene for. Scientists, geneticists hate that. I think you're, you, you genetic, you, the genes that uh, influence your height, there's probably over 100 genes that influence your height. So it's, you very rarely get gene four. And even if you do, it's mitigated by other genes. It's very complex. So just be wary when you when you see something like the gene four, the gene four, like the god gene. Kindness or pro-social behaviour. Really interesting work has gone into, into kindness. Um, firstly, they used to think kindness was your brain actively suppressing selfishness. So if you were trying to be kind, you were actively trying to be kind. You, you were, I'm not going to be selfish. I am going to give this lady here a biscuit. Uh, that's how kind I am. But they've actually done much research recently that's found that that mechanism in your brain, the amygdala, is an automatic functioning part of the brain. And that's a bit that, the, that, 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 that does the stuff to do with deciding whether to be pro-social or not, and it's automatic. Actually, you're not suppressing selfishness. It's just an automatic behaviour. And that could be based on your learning and your environment and your genes and all sorts of different things. But the fact is, at the time of making many kind kindness decisions, you're actually, it's fairly automatic, you're a kind person. 
and you can, you, it's another discussion as to why you're a kind of person. There's also another interesting piece of uh, the Comtine gene variant, which um, they found, they, they, they did an experiment on a bunch of people, and they, they, it was just a random experiment. It had nothing to do with what they're really looking at. And they'd already got their genetic blueprints, and they, they, they picked the control group and the people with the Comtine gene variant. And they, they, the people, and they, at the end of the experiment, they said, well, here's 20 quid, or however much it was. Here's 20 quid, thanks for doing the experiment. Oh, by the way, there's, um, there's a donation jar over here for local charity, blah, blah, blah. If you want to put, put some money into that, that'd be really kind. And straight up, the people with the Comte gene variant were 50%, um, put in 50% more, 50% more likely to charity. I mean, it was, it was hugely, um, so a massive correlation there, or causation. So, um, so it's really interesting. So we think, oh, you know, we're, we're deciding to be kind, but we're deciding to be kind because we are who we are. We've had the learning we've had, and it sort of comes naturally, doesn't it? You don't suddenly. I'm normally kind. I'm normally kind today. I'm deciding to be horrible. You know, you just don't do that. You, 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 you know, you are who you are. So another lady said, well, actually, that last load of experiments is, is pretty much um, uh, confirmed what, I, what I've, been doing. I've been doing. Pro-socials, kind people are intrinsically motivated to cooperate. So that's really interesting. Cooperation, very much intrinsic in us. Um, this could still be learned, as I said before, but at the time of making the decision, it's fairly old. Criminal behaviour. Again, getting a bunch of three-year-olds and doing tests on them. Great. But um, they looked at fear conditioning in toddlers, and this was in Mauritius actually, and they got um, a bunch of three-year-olds and they did, they found out how they cope with fear and, and what, what uh, reaction they had to fear, you know, they sweat, sweated, whether they, they, they did X, Y, Z. And they found out that people didn't feel fear, if you like. They followed this cohort for 20 years, and they, I think they looked at them when they were 23, yeah, 23. And the crime statistics were incredible. For the children that showed no sign of fear at the age of three were the children that were committing crimes later. And one would presume because they had no fear of the consequences of getting caught, so on and so forth. You know, you can talk about why that's the case. So poor fear condition early in life implicates amygdala, ventral prefrontal, causes a scientific blah, 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 and lack of fear of socialising punishments in children who grow up to become criminals. These findings are consistent with the neurodevelopmental contributions of crime causation. So that's lots of geek speak for the fact that a lot of our behaviour seems to be determined genetically or environmentally. You're learning, and then how you learn is, it, is in terms possibly genetically determined. So it all comes back. Did any hands up if you saw the BBC for a reason? Are you good or evil? About the warrior gene. Oh, superb. It was on about six months ago, maybe. Um, if, if any of you are, uh, are good at, on the internet, you can look it up and maybe sort of download it somewhere. It is fascinating. This guy had, had looked at, a geneticist had looked at the, the, the genes of these psychopathic killers in prison on death row. You know, proper horrible moments. And he isolated a particular gene, which was called the warrior gene. And they said, this gene has something to do with psychopathy. It's prevalent in all these people, and 
you know, lots of other sort of um, research and results. We're fairly sure this is this is an important one, but it can be mitigated. Blah blah blah. So they recommend family, a particular gene, which you know, it's, I think it's linked to empathy. It's linked to a lot of things which which will lead you to which can lead you to psychopathy. What's really interesting is the guy that was running the experiments decided to do a genetic test on himself. And he got the results back, and he was absolutely stunned that he had that gene. And he was like, oh my goodness, why am I not a psychopath that's on death row? So he went back to his family and said, you know all this work that I've done and all this amazing stuff I've found to do with psychopathy, look at this. And his, pair, his, his family said, we're not surprised. There are hints of you, you know, blah, 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 that given as different environments, we think possibly, you know, maybe, I don't know what the reason, maybe he got particularly angry in certain situations, I don't know. But apparently this guy had such a loving upbringing, he was really the, the perfect upbringing, no problems, perfect family, all that kind of stuff. And they think that that mitigated his genetically determined or indetermined um, behaviours. So you've got to understand that genes go so far, but we're a mixture of genes and environment. So you can still be the loving family to your children and end up affecting their, um, their development. So it's not just about genetic determinism, it's determinism as a whole. And it's about, well, I'll come on to that in a second. This is interesting. I talked to Veronica a little bit about um, empathy. And actually, empathy is hugely important for kindness and morality. A lot of people link, a lot of philosophers will link morality, being good or bad, to how much you can empathize with other people. I'm not going to punch someone in the face if I can imagine well what it's like to be punched manually in the face. However, someone that has no empathy ends up doing things rather instinctively, and you can end up here. Now, I've, I've taught quite a few children with, on the autistic spectrum, and it's very interesting that the children that don't have empathy are the children that will just pick up a pencil and throw it across the room, and you say, why do you do that? And they go, hmm? And they do. Quite often with free will, when you're talking about decisions, we think of things as a decision to do something, but quite often it's a decision not to do something. And they don't have that veto. Quite often children on the, on the autistic spectrum, certain, certain children. So they, they, they can't, they don't have the veto not to do something, and they also are unable often to empathize with other people. So it's very difficult to be kind to someone or to want to do certain behaviours if you can't empathise them. And there are these things called mirror neurons. In your brain, there are billions of neurons, there's a certain patch of neurons called mirror neurons, which we don't know an awful lot about, so it's a bit on the cutting edge at the moment. But they, in Italy, some years back, they were, had the brain of a monkey open, and a, and a scientist came in, and he was licking a, an ice cream. And the brain, the brain of the monkey started going, really reacting. And they're like, this is amazing, what's going on? It worked out that the brain was simulating, the monkey was simulating eating that ice cream. So these mirror neurons literally mirror what you see. So for example, if you're driving past a car crash, 
and you see someone, you're the first person there, you see someone, <coughs> legs bleeding, uh, just, just straight away you can mirror that. You are experiencing that yourself, and therefore, that's why you're calm. And you go, you, know, you go and get them into your car, you drive them off to the hospital, you don't care that they're bleeding all over your car and it's going to cost you X amount of money, you know, that's fine. However, if you get a leaflet through your door saying, children in Africa are dying, give us 200 quid, and so manually cost to clean your car, you're less likely to go, okay, you're probably likely to go jump now, jump now, jump now. Why is that? Because the empathy is not so strong. Just a piece of paper amongst many, you've seen it lots of times before, so on and so forth. So empathy is hugely important and it's often triggered so they think by mirror neurons. And again, children with on the autistic spectrum are thoughts, it's not definite, but are thought to have dysfunctional mirror neurons. So the reason why they're empathy, they're, they are not empathic, is that they're possibly their mirror neurons don't function. So the kindness, the empathy, all these things can be can be into the brain. And so just just sort of wrapping up the general um, talk, crime and responsibility. So what happens if you're saying, well, people are determined to do what they're going to do? What happens to, to criminals? Well, what do you do? Do you punish people? How, how does it all work? Actually, determinism is creeping into our, uh, our justice system and the American justice system and all around the world, actually. You'll find that already we mitigate people's um, sentences based on mitigating factors, don't we? We say, oh, they're like this, or they're like this, or they've got an environment that's like this, or they're predisposed to do that because they've got this um, disposition or they've got this issue, and so therefore we lessen their, their sentence quite often. So already we, we have a kind of determinism in our justice system. It's very interesting, this guy, um, uh, Abdel Malik Bayou, uh, was sentenced to nine years, and then they appealed and they got it reduced by, by several years because they found he had a gene variant in his brain, or five gene variants I think, that made him predisposed to be violent. So they actually said, basically, in simple terms, he couldn't help it. And they reduced his sentence. So that's huge, that's hugely important. A world of, of, of justice and, and crime and responsibility can be thrown up in the air here. We, we really have to think about if determinism is true, where do we take it, what do we do with it, how do we treat criminals? Um, so, uh, and this is interesting, the uh, Council on Bioethics concluded that the use of genetic information to help determine custodial sentences, along with other information, should not be ruled out. And in fact, there's been, now I think there's been well over 200 cases of genetic all right, Pierce, as you just saw, starts out with genetics. Um, he talks about the God gene. And now, one thing he points out, you know, genetics uh, it has been shown to control about 50 to 80 percent of our behavior. So that's a very clear indication that uh, free will is impossible because of that. Because if you have genes taking part in our personality that takes part in our every decision, and we can't control in any means, you know, what, what genes we have, then that clearly refutes free will. So, but what, he, what he's explaining in this is that, that, um, that basically uh, uh, we have these, this, this gene makeup that we're inherit, we've inherited from our parents, from, you know, their parents. It's, you know, uh, um, 
just generation by generation gets, you know, and um, just um, take, carries over. If, if that's the case, then, then, um, then, you know, it negates free will. And an important point here is that, like, some people, you know, talk about, like, a certain gene being responsible for um, a certain behavior. I think Pierce is, is very um, keen to point out that in the vast majority of cases, it's not really just one gene. It's actually a collection of genes. It's, you know, a whole, you know, a gamut. Okay. Um, Pierce then goes on to... Um, to talk about kindness. All right, now with kindness, we kind of like, there had been a theory, a theory that kindness was really about suppressing kind of like antisocial um, attitudes that we have, that we basically, you know, suppressing selfishness. Okay, so like what we found though is that kindness is actually something that functions automatically. It's, it's a function of the amygdala, amygdala as Pierce points out. Um, Basically, um, yeah, it's 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 automatic. It's 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 a proactive or a pro-social behavior. It's not something that we're we're kind of like suppressing a negative part of us. It's actually something that's automatically, instinctually part of our positive way of responding to other people to to um, to um, situations in general. Okay, then Pierce goes on to criminal behavior. <coughs> um, as you noticed, um, there is research, you know, empirical research, scientific research that demonstrates you take a child at three years old, you notice how well or not he, that child handles fear, and those toddlers who are least fearful at three years old will quite interestingly be the, 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 um, <coughs> the adults that 23 years later will be li more likely to commit more crime. Okay, and as, as Pierce points out, this isn't like, this genetic determination isn't the whole picture, because as Pierce points out, the, the researcher who did this, um, this study actually did, did it on himself, and he found, well, actually, he, he talks about, like, this warrior gene. He, uh, there was this research where they took these death row inmates, people who were, like, you know, in prison for murdering people, and they received the death penalty for this, and they, they tried, they, they determined you know, if there was a gene responsible that they had in common, and they, they call this the, the warrior gene. And again, it's not the only gene responsible, but like the researcher who did this experiment uh, actually did it on himself and found that he had that same gene. Now, this is important because this means that like, yeah, what our gene pool is isn't going to completely determine our behavior. You know, um, that experimenter was very fortunate to have very kind parents, very, a, very a wonderful upbringing that mitigated and reversed the effects of the, of the negative effect of this gene. Okay. Pierce then goes into morality and empathy. Um, <clears throat> in order to, to a lot of times be moral, to behave morally, morally, you have to have empathy. In other words, a lot of our morality stems from how we um, perceive our behavior affects others or behavior in general affects others. In other words, like if we perceive that others feel pain as a result of our doing stuff, then that empathy, then we, we will feel empathy, and that will lead our morality. So Pierce is, is quick to point out that in some illnesses like autism, that, that process of being able to empathize with others apparently doesn't work 
as well as it should. So, like, you have certain individuals in society that they just, you know, it's not through their fault. It's not anything they had um, any control of. They're not able to, like, look at a person and, and conclude, wow, this person's in pain or, or uh, make the connection between the person's pain and a certain behavior. Um, apparently what they found is that um, autistic people sometimes lack mirror neurons. And mirror ne- neurons, as Pierce explained, is like, let's say you're watching a movie. You know, these neurons actually will make you... There's a part of our brain that when you're watching a movie or reading a book or, or something like that, <coughs> it'll make you... That part of the brain actually believes that it's you who who is actually um, taking part in the experience. (coughs) Okay. Um, Crime and responsibility. Pierce then goes on to explain that, you know, even though free will is the law of the land, Supreme Court, you know, a decade or two ago said that, yes, we have free will, and it's completely mistaken, but... Even though that is the law of the land, we do have we do account for in our legal system mitigating circumstances. There is, you know, for persons like distraught, if the person's inebriated, if the person, you know, had certain kinds of circumstances, the law will take that into account. And that's a clear demonstration that the law is taking into account that there are factors that control our behavior over which we're not in control, over which we have no control. Uh, Pierce cites a person in Italy who was sentenced to uh, um, to some term, and he got his sentence reduced, I think, by seven years because the researchers found that there, he conter- contained a certain set of genes that so powerfully predisposed the person to act the way he did that he was essentially not, you know, completely in control. Now, naturally, because um, all of nature is either causal, meaning that everything has a cause, or random, I mean, that's... Things aren't really random, but certain of us believe that they are. Because of those two factors, free will is completely impossible. But again, it's still it's still possible to show that um, that our genes, that, that you know, genetic factors beyond our control do um, influence and really can override our our conditioning, whatever. Okay, so so in criminal justice, there is a movement toward basically. Um, addressing crime, not retributively in, in terms of like, you know, a just desserts. This person did something evil, so they deserve to suffer and all, which is the archaic, you know, past way of addressing it. We're now addressing it, well, this person did something because there were some certain reasons why they, they did it. And, you know, the, the object would be to either reform society, so those conditions are no longer um, prevalent, or to reform the individual, understanding that the indiv- individual couldn't help but do what he did. Okay, um, that's all we have time for today. Um, again, I'm, I'm going to next go into like the, the last part of Pierce's presentation. And again, this is his book. But again, it, it is truly a historic work of the highest rank. Um, I, I would best, I would guess that history will recognize his 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 brilliance and the brilliance of this work, and and um, recognize his his stature as the top scientist of all time. Okay, thanks for watching.